You're listening to The Jewish Truth Bomb with Lenny Goldberg. Hi, this is Lenny Goldberg, and thanks for joining me today. We all know that Israel has a lot of problems, and it could get kind of depressing at times. But if there's one thing that makes me smile before I go to sleep, it's to know that we have hilltop youth who are settling the hilltops of Israel. While we're sitting in our houses in Tapuach or Kidumim or Lud or Boca, there are Hebrew youth out there on the hilltops without the physical comforts of air conditioning and internet and all that. And they're settling the land and fighting for the land and confronting Arabs every day. And so they're not just settling the land, they're actually performing the mitzvah, which I've mentioned over and over again in the show. They're fulfilling the mitzvah of Horoshata Goyim. They're also driving out some of the Arabs. And I'll give you a good example of it. In the hills of Binyamin, right by the settlement, Kochav there's a bunch of hilltop youth over there. And within that same area, for years, there were a whole bunch of Bedouin families a lot of Bedouin tents who were creating trouble for the settlement of Kochav because they steal and they inch closer and closer to your fences and they grow and they steal again. You know, not every Arab is a terrorist, but a lot of them are thieves. In Tepuach, we have a Jewish shepherd. His name is Avraham. And he's had at least on three occasions his herd stolen by Arabs. They come in in the middle of the night. They throw meat at the dogs guarding there and divert their attention. And then they just lead the goats and sheeps on waiting trucks. And they do this all in a matter of minutes. You know, they're experts at stealing. And then they slaughter the animals before you can even find them. Anyway, these Bedouins were giving the residents of Kochav a pretty tough time. And then enter the hilltop youth. And they set up settlements around those Bedouin tents. They started grazing their flocks in the fields where the Bedouins were. And slowly, they were making those Bedouins feel kind of cramped. So these Bedouins who had been there for years, they just decided to pick up and leave. They said, let's go to another hilltop where nobody bothers us. We don't want this crazy hilltop youth around us. And so now the entire area is clean. No more Bedouin tents. Well, this past week, what made the news was an incident when a Jewish shepherd, his name was Yechil Indor, he was grazing with his flocks in the area of Migron. And that's a hilltop not far from Jerusalem. When he was approached and threatened by a mob of Arabs, eventually there were 300 of them, Arabs living in the nearby village of Borka, they attacked this Jewish shepherd. Well, the Jews living nearby, they rushed to the site to help Yechil Indor, and there was a fight, and the Arabs were hurling rocks and swinging clubs and shooting fireworks at the Jews, and Yechil Indor's head was split open by one of the rocks hurled by the Arab. And so he opened fire with his licensed weapon in an attempt to defend himself. And during the clash, an Arab named Jamal Matan was shot and killed and Indor was arrested, but he couldn't come to the court. You know why? Because he's laying in the hospital in Sharet Tzedek with his skull fractured, recovering from head surgery that he had to undergo. And so due to his medical condition, the hearing took place in his absence and the police arrested somebody else and the Shabak got all involved as well. Another hilltop youth, who tried to help Indor. His name is Alicia Yerid. Well, after a week of interrogations by the Shabak, court hearings and appeals, all in connection with this incident, the magistrate court decided finally on Wednesday afternoon not to extend the detention of Alicia Yerid and Yechil Indor. So they were released. 
to house arrest. Now, this was a case so obvious of self-defense. I mean, it was just like the case of Kyle Rittenhouse, what happened with him in Wisconsin. This, this case might be more open and shut than the case of Kyle Rittenhouse because in this case, Yechil Indor, he was already severely wounded when he shot at the Arabs who were trying to kill him. We're talking about a situation where this Jewish shepherd, Yechil Indor, he was attacked by a mob of Arabs. This was a lynch. If he didn't shoot, he would be dead. As it is, he's laying in a hospital with a fractured skull after surgery. Anyway, like I said, Alicia Yered, the fellow who came to his uh, rescue, he was released on house arrest. And you wouldn't believe how that infuriated the Israeli newspapers, Aretz, the Times of Israel. How could they let this guy go? Their hate for the Hilltop youth, it's probably even greater than their hate for the Haredim. Now, what do they hate about a kid like Alicia Yered? Well, if you saw his picture, you see a good-looking kid with long payas and smiling. You know, that's the very opposite of what they are. They're grumpy, grouchy, balding leftists. That's what they are. They see a kid like this with a smile on his face, proud to be a Jew. That just eats them up. And so they spill their hate and their poison in their filthy tabloids. And what the Arabs try to do to this kid to lynch him, the Israeli left does it instead. They do the lynching in their reporting. They lynch him and character assassinate him in their news reports. And it's incredible because if you look at the newspapers, like Haaretz and Times of Israel, and they talk about this case, they don't even give the background to it. They just report that two Hilltop youth were released after shooting an Arab dead without explaining what happened to them. Moving on to something else, this week I happened to be in a, a kind of a meeting at a restaurant for the high-powered Zionists. And one of the speakers there was the Minister of Education. His name is Yoav Kish. And he says all the right things, you know. He's from the Likud, so he's not a leftist or anything like that. And he said what's important is to build Jewish identity in this country because he realizes that the youth lack Jewish identity. Now, this fellow is not even religious, but he understands that it's a problem. I mean, if there's nothing Jewish about the country or a person here doesn't feel Jewish, then what makes this place special? So even secular Jews understand that. To have a differential advantage, you got to make the country a little bit Jewish. The people have to have respect for Judaism. Isn't that what it means to have a Jewish state? That you know what being a Jew is? And one of the participants asked him, how do you define a Jewish identity? And he said something true. He said, when I ask a kid in Israel, what are you? Are you Jewish or are you Israeli? I want him to say he's Jewish, not Israeli. That's a good point. Because what does it mean to be Israeli? An Arab in Israel, he's also an Israeli. It's on his Tudazahut. What does it mean to be an Israeli? But the thing that gets me, and this is what everybody does, is that when they talk about the Jewish character of the state, they always have to talk about the democratic character too. Judaism, it's got to be Jewish and democratic. Every other sentence has those two words. We got to uphold the Jewish character and the democratic fabric. Goes hand in hand. And I guess most Jews think that way. That Israel, it's a Jewish state and it's a democratic state. And it always comes back to me what Rabbi Kahana always said. And that is, how can you have a democratic and Jewish state? Doesn't democracy postulate that the majority rules no matter who it is? And if you're talking about a Jewish state, doesn't that mean that we have to be a majority of Jews in order to maintain our sovereignty, that it's a Jewish state? So how can you have a democratic Jewish state? What happens if the majority of the citizens are Chinese or Arab 
and they vote democratically to turn Israel into Palestine or China. So that was always Rabbi Kahana's way to needle all the good Jews who want to be both. And in his book, Uncomfortable Questions for Comfortable Jews, that was always question number one. Do the Arabs have a right democratically to vote Israel out of existence? Because if you say no, you might be a Zionist, but you're against democracy. And if you say yes, that they do have that right, then you're not a Zionist because everybody knows that the minimal definition of Zionism is that the Jews remain a majority. And I remember when Rabbi Kahana debated Alan Dershowitz, there were two great debates between them. And you got to give Alan Dershowitz credit for going up against Kahana in a debate because nobody else was willing to do that. And in that debate, Dershowitz really represented the democratic model. And Rabbi Kahana was giving the Jewish point of view. And of course, this clashed. And I want to bring a couple of minutes from that debate where the moderator of the debate, Avi Weiss, and he asked the question point blank to Dershowitz, what happens if the Arabs become a majority? Will you let democracy enable the Arabs to become a majority and overrun the country? So now we'll listen to how Alan Dershowitz tries to answer this and we'll see how he rambles on trying to answer this question. And then we'll hear how Rabbi Kahana responds to that. Many fear that the high Arab fertility rate coupled with the low Jewish-Israel fertility rate and increased emigration of Jews from Israel would lead to a situation in which Arabs will constitute the majority population within the 1967 borders by the middle of the next century. If granted citizenship, they could vote, would vote as a bloc to render null and void the essential aspects that make Israel a Jewish state, including the law of return. Through democratic means, they would undo the Jewish nation, nature of the state. Are you, Professor Dershowitz, prepared to accept the workings of democracy if those workings result in a state that is no longer a Jewish state? You have just stated very articulately the challenge of 21st century Zionism. I do not shrink from that challenge. I do not think most Israelis shrink from that challenge. To say that we understand the challenge is not to say that we can anticipate all the factors that will eventually lead to a solution to the problem. The decision will not, by the way, be made by Alan Dershowitz. It will not be made in Cambridge, Massachusetts. It will be made by Israelis who live in Israel, who have elected Israel as their home, whose sons and daughters confront life and death decisions every day. It would be incredibly presumptuous of me to try to tell Israelis what to choose if that conflict occurred. I can only say what David Ben-Gurion's answer was, what Golda Meir's answer was, and what Chaim Weitzman and Theodor Herzl's answer was. The answer was, we must struggle to preserve the Jewish character of the state of Israel. We must encourage Aliyah. We must open the doors of Soviet Jewry and of Syrian Jewry and of Ethiopian Jewry. We must do things to encourage demographic changes that will ensure that Israel remains a Jewish state. If and when the time comes, if through all efforts by Israelis, there is no other way of resolving the issue, it will not be resolved by the rhetoric of Meyer Kahana. It will not be resolved by the answers of Alan Dershowitz. It will be resolved by the people of Israel through the processes which they have elected, through the processes which put Meyer Kahana in the Knesset, 
through the processes which allow Meir Kahana to speak freely in Israel, the democratic processes, the liberal processes, the libertarian processes, the freedom processes, the very egalitarian processes that Rabbi Kahana eschews. But mostly, the decision will be made in Israel, by Israelis, under the circumstances that prevail in whatever year this crisis occurs. Let me simply end by saying that a most recent study by demographers at Hebrew University completely undercut the likelihood that this is going to happen. There is no realistic likelihood that in the immediate future this challenge will be presented. And I am confident that if it is presented, it will be solved in both a Jewish and a democratic manner. That was about five minutes of not answering the question. The question was, hypothetically, assuming, would you be prepared, you, as a Jew, and I'm suddenly amazed at the modesty of my opponents. He, of course, has never offered any views about Israel. Never, ever. Suddenly, he becomes modest. It is too presumptuous of, of me to offer a view. Offer, offer. Because this is not a question of Israel. This is a question of the Jewish state. And you're a Jew. And the Jewish people have a vested interest in that Jewish state. Let's not speak of, the answer is, Aliyah. I see how many Jews are leaving Harvard. It's not a question of, in the immediate future, there is no... I agree with you. Tomorrow, there will not be a majority of Arabs, nor in two weeks. But the question is, when the Arabs become a quarter of the population of Israel, Israel will have a Northern Ireland on its ends. The Galilee today has a majority of Arabs. Wadi Allah has a majority of Arabs. The Mishulash, the Triangle, has a majority of, of Arabs. That is the question. And who are we to, to speak about... The experts say, what experts say, what, what experts say. The Arabs of Israel have, have grown from 11% to 18% to within the state of Israel, despite a huge aliyah of Jews from Arab countries. Today there is no aliyah. The Arab aliyah has been an internal one, fully, totally. My God, I don't want to wait to see the knife on my throat. The wise person is one who sees tomorrow today. That was Alan Dershowitz versus Rabbi Kahan in a debate that took place in 1984. Think about that. And you know, speaking about democracy, when I think of all the supporters of Israel who really admire Israel and they're pro-Israel, but they're only pro-Israel because we're the only democratic country in the Middle East. That's what, that's what they love us for. So that means we have to let the Arabs vote us out of existence so everybody can still love us. And I heard an interview with Robert F. Kennedy Jr. He was uh, being asked questions by Rav Shmuel Boteach. And I heard him on the interview explain why he's so pro-Israel. And he really does have a reputation of being pro-Israel. And people just quell from Nachas that he says nice things about Israel. But everything he said was like, that's why you like Israel? Like, what did he say? He says Israel's great because they have those liberal values and they have lots of gay parades. They're so tolerant. And RFK Jr., he's very informed about Israel. I mean, he's talking about stuff not everybody knows. He mentioned the Supreme Court decision that forbids to torture terrorists. 
even if it might prevent a mega terror attack, if you have some terrorist there, you're not allowed to torture him. Even if he has information that can save myriads of Jews, you're not allowed to torture him. That's what the Supreme Court of Israel ruled. And RFK is so proud of that. And he talked about the idea of conduct in Jenin, which was a couple of weeks ago, how we only kill terrorists. We're very pinpointing not to kill innocents. And we drop leaflets. And I'm not really specifically talking about RFK Jr. He's just an example. There's so many people like that, that they support Israel for all these reasons. But what happens if Israel starts to do the thing that it's got to do to survive? What happens if we stop being so woke and start becoming more of a Jewish state, Jewish tradition? What if we, I don't know, allow Jews to go up into the Temple Mount and pray? What any normal country would do? What if we expel the Arabs who want to kill us? Well, I'm telling you, we're going to lose all these guys. All these good guys who love Israel, who sympathize with Israel, who really support Israel, we're going to lose them the minute we do what we got to do. And we're going to lose supporters much better than RFK Jr. We're probably going to lose support of some of the best people out there. I don't know, maybe we won't lose people like Huckabee because he's coming from a Bible perspective and we're just doing what it says in the Bible. But the thing is, when we take all those steps that we have to take to survive, we're going to lose a lot of that support. We got to be ready for that. And that's why the Torah says that at the end of the day, we are a nation that dwells alone, not considered amongst all the nations. And we can't consider what everybody else says. We just got to do the right thing. You want to be with us, be with us. I want to move now on to the important part of the podcast. And that's what we read a couple of days ago in the Parsha. It's Parsha Re'eh. And it opens like this. Re'eh, from the word Lir'ot, to see. So it's saying, see, or pay attention. I give before you the blessing and the curse. And it continues. The blessings will occur if you listen to the mitzvot of your God and do what I command you. And the curses will occur if you don't obey the mitzvot of your God and you go off the derech, you go off the proper path, then you're going to get those klalot. You're going to get those curses. So the great commentator, the Sforno, on this verse, which is the opening verse of the Parsha, Re'eh, he says, what does it mean, Re'eh? I mean, literally it means, look, I give before you the blessings and the curse. What, what is that extra Re'eh, the first word of the Pasha, doing there? So what's the deeper understanding? So the Sforno says like this, Re'eh, Hebita, pay attention, look, Re'eh, and see, Shalom ye'inecha be'ofen ha'benoni, that you're never mediocre, that you're never the average Joe, like the majority of the people, just average guys. You are never that way. You're never average. That's why God says, see, pay attention. That's what you should be paying attention to. And this forno continues. In fact, for I give before you the blessing and the curse. And those are two extremes. Because the bracha, the blessing, is great, great success, more than average. Vaklala, and the curse, is also the other extreme. So what the Sforno is saying is that the Jew is never a benoni. He's never just another guy. He's never just mediocre. He's either way up or he's way down. For the Jew, it's all or nothing. It's a blessing or a curse. And you see that every day. When the Jew isn't going in the right direction, he becomes the lowest of the low. You look at a place like Tel Aviv, where the secular Jews are trying so much to copy America and be like America. So you have two Studio 54s. 
It's not enough one student of 54. You got to have two because we got to show that we can party as good as anybody. And you have gay parades right and left more than any other country because we have to prove that we're the most woke of all. I mean, we're talking about a country, Israel, that in the Eurovision years ago, they had Dana International represent them. Before woke was in, we had this transvestite freak representing Israel. And that was years ago. I mean, we're way ahead of the times. So that's what the Sforno says. We're extreme. With us, it's either a blessing or it's a curse. We can be the best and we can be the worst. So as the famous saying goes, the Jews are like every other people, only more so. Now you could take this in so many different ways, you know, just on a political level, right? Forget about the Torah for a second. You notice how the biggest leftists and traitors are Jews? They lead the pack. Bernie Sanders, Adam Schiff, Schuber, so many of them. On the other hand, the most articulate and most brilliant conservative voices are also Jews. You know, Mark Levin and Ben Shapiro. So yeah, we Jews excel. You know, we excel at being the worst and at being the best. And now putting in a Torah perspective along these lines, Rabbi Kahana has a book called Ala Emuna Ala Gula on Faith and Redemption. And it's a fantastic book. It's a small book. And in it is basically the whole secret to how to bring the redemption. And he opens up the book with two verses, which really seem to contradict. The first verse is from Deuteronomy chapter four. It says, How wise and brilliant is this great nation? But then you have another verse, also in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 32, verse five, which says, What a vile and unwise people. So there you have the two extremes right there. One verse says, What a great nation we can be. And right after that, Suddenly, we're stupid. And of course, it all depends if we go in the way of Torah or not. If you have the Torah to guide you, you can reach greatness and holiness. But if a Jew doesn't have it, his neshama will always be searching because he's a Jew. He's got that extra pintalayid. He's looking. And if he doesn't find it in Torah, he'll find it in all kinds of bizarre and sick ideologies which totally negate the Torah. And that's why the Jewish people despite their small numbers, are always very prominent in world history. Whether it's Jesus or Karl Marx, that's on the cursed side, or whether it's the great many Jewish people who have wandered this earth and sanctified God's name. And speaking on the topic of Jewish liberals and why the Jews always driving that liberal leftist ideology, what, what is it about them that if you're a secular Jew cut off from Torah, it's almost like you're an automatic leftist. And I think that's because Jews are always trying to fix the world and so they see leftist and liberal ideology as something very idealistic and to help the underdog. While conservatism to them is like selfishness, you know, free enterprise and grab what you can get. That sounds so non-altruistic. While socialism and equality, that just speaks to the Jewish soul because the philosophy of conservatism and liberty and all, it really doesn't have that much ideology behind it. A lot of it is about, you know, making money, free enterprise capitalism. So that sounds greedy. If you look at it superficially, I'm saying it doesn't matter that the system works, that the system of capitalism takes that greed and uses it for the advantage of society. The Jew doesn't care about that. He sees inequality. That's not fair. You got to fix that. And a Jew will climb the barricades to get done what he thinks has to be done because, you know, he's Jewish. He's not Benoni. He's not mediocre. It's the top of the bottom. 
It's all or nothing, like the Sforno says. Shtek Savot, two extremes, the blessing and the curse. Let it be God's will that we choose the blessings and our state shall thrive with blessings. Amen. Okay, this rant is over. That's it for me. And if you want to hear more, you can listen to my Bible classes, Lenny Goldberg's Bible classes, for the proper study of Bible. Learn the depth and beauty of the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh. Get inspiration from the Jewish heroes, from the Davids and the Sauls and the Yonatans and the Yoavs. Find out what it was like to be a Jew before the exile. What was the state of Israel before exile? How Jews conducted themselves before the cursed galut. The only way you can get all that is if you learn the Tanakh. So join me over there at Lenny Goldberg's Bible Classes. And God willing, I'll be back next week, same time, same station.